You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. This is one of Christ's official titles, Jesus the Truth. He only among men is the affirmation, the confirmation of the mind of God. He is God's last word to mankind. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, in verse 20, there we are told all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, or are As mankind plummets further into its perpetual rebellion against God, the attacks against truth become all the more common. Unfortunately, many of these attacks have become mostly directed at the church, which properly headed by Christ is the final obstacle. In today's message, Pastor Mike reflects on the very nature and character of Christ, the culmination of God's message to mankind. In his study, you'll gain a better understanding of the nature of Christ, the ultimate arbiter of truth. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 3 as he begins his message, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. grab your Bibles and turn with me to where we left off last Sunday here in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. The title is Laodicea, the Lukewarm Church. Now this is the last in a series of seven letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation. It's sort of become like a mini-series within our series here in our studies in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel, or the pastor, the overseer, the elder, of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, or more accurately, the author of creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. By the way, this is the strongest rebuke of any of the rebukes or indictments that Jesus brought against any of the members of these seven churches. Uh, We'll come back to that in just a bit. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. These are the various indictments. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, 
and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, once again, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Okay, let's get right to it. And that brings us to our first point. So let's talk a little bit about Laodicea's history. So that's our first point, Laodicea's history. Okay, let's talk about the location. Laodicea was the chief city of Phrygia, which was a part of a province located in Asia Minor. It was strategically located in the Lycus Valley, some 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And remember, Philadelphia was the last church that we addressed there in that previous letter that we studied last Sunday. It was located at the confluence of three well-traveled highways, and because of this access, the city grew into a highly successful commercial and financial center. It was a city of wealthy bankers and financiers. Its many millionaires combined to build what would be the equivalent of today's theaters, a a huge stadium, exquisite public baths, and fabulous shopping centers. And so it was a very attractive and popular destination. Now, as it relates to the church and the founding of the church, we have no record of who it was that actually planted this church at this location. But many people believe that it was a fellow whose name was Epaphras. And we know concerning this man, Epaphras, that first of all, he was a disciple of Paul the Apostle. He was the pastor at the church in uh, Colossae. And, And we also know that from Paul's letter that was written to that church in Colossae, that this was a church that Paul was well aware of. It was a church that he was extremely concerned about. In fact, let me give you a couple of cross-references. If you quickly turn with me uh, to the book of Colossians, like for example in chapter 2, there in verse 1, this is Paul uh, writing, and it says there, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. So obviously the, the people there, the believers that were uh, a part of that work there in Laodicea, they were on Paul's heart. He was extremely concerned about them. For what reason? We're, we're Well, I mean, if you put this alongside of the, this letter that was written by uh, our Lord, we could probably identify some of the things that he was concerned about. But the reason why uh, many people believe that Epaphras was the fellow that was responsible for planting this church, if you go ahead here in the book of Colossians, in chapter 4, in verses 12 through 16, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete or mature in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. 
Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. So not only was Paul concerned about and prayed for this church located in the city, so did this man Epaphras. And so that's some of the reasons why many Bible teachers believe that Epaphras was the fellow who was responsible for the planting of this church. So anyway, that's just some of the background as it relates to the city, some of the background that relates to the history of this church. Now that brings us to our second point, and that is a last day's church. This is our second point. Now this letter is the last, as I've already mentioned, in a series of seven letters that were written by Jesus, which close out his prophetic foreview of the church's earthly history. Remember, I, in, in opening, when we first began seven weeks ago, the introduction to these seven letters, I had mentioned that these letters also represented seven divisions of church history. So this last letter represents the end of the church age. That is the age in which we presently live, the last day's church. So even as the first church, the first letter, addressed to the church at Ephesus, represented the first century church, the apostolic age, with all of its characteristics. So this last church, Laodicea, represents the last day's church, the last day's age, last day's Christianity, 21st century Christianity, representing that final period of church history. And folks, let me tell you something, it's not a pretty picture. Why is that? Well, think about it. Many of today's so-called Christian churches, with all of its denials of essential Christian truth and doctrine, like, for example, the denial of Christ's virgin birth, his atonement for our sins, his bodily resurrection, just to name a few. You know, I want you to notice something that I think is really significant. When you consider all of these things that were absent, all of the substitutes, the counterfeit substitutions that were put into place for the real thing, for real truth. Notice here in verse 20 of our text that we just read, Jesus is pictured as outside the church. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Basically, it conjures up a picture in my mind of Jesus saying, I want my church back. Why? Because of all of the things that have been put in place, you know, those things to which were counterfeit substitutions. So Jesus is outside the church. He's been pushed outside of the church. So this is a church that was marked by liberalism, worldliness, and cold-hearted Christianity. Now that brings us to our third point, and that is our Lord's descriptions of himself. Now to this church, I want you to notice the way that Jesus presents himself to those that he is addressing, which perfectly fits their condition, which such was the case with all of the six other churches as well, the things that were going on, specifically their shortcomings, their sins, their false practices. We should be very interested in the way that Jesus presents himself, because in the way that he presents himself, it perfectly fits their condition. So let's go on then. Notice in verse 14, the first way that he describes himself, he says, these things saith the amen. Now, both in the Greek 
as well as the Hebrew language, the word amen is translated truth. So the idea here then is Jesus is the truth. And of course, one of the most familiar portions of scripture in the New Testament, John's Gospel in chapter 14 and verse 6, there we are told Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. That's his essential characteristic. Jesus is truth. But this is also true in the Old Testament, describing God and the way that he's recommended to us there. Like, for example, as another cross-reference, Isaiah 65 and verse 16. There, God is described as the God of truth. So, you can add an amen to every word that Jesus utters. You see, this is one of Christ's official titles. Jesus, the truth. He only among men is the affirmation, the confirmation of the mind of God. He is God's last word to mankind. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, in verse 20, there we are told all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes, and in Him, amen, or are true. Listen, what the church at Laodicea should have been and failed to be, Jesus is. He is the truth. He is the amen. Whereas the church at Laodicea was false. They were untrue. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. But then notice, he goes on and further describes himself in this way. Verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. That is the one in whom creation had its beginnings. He, that is Jesus, is the original agent in God's creative work. Let me give you a cross-reference for this. Go back to the book of Colossians in chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17. It says, for by him, and in context it's speaking of Jesus, for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are in on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. Now this church, notice, let's go back to our text in verse 17, that was wealthy, these were the things that they were boasting about, these were the things that they were known for, they were wealthy and worldly, they needed to know this truth. That is that Jesus is the creator of all things, the heir of all things. You see, they boasted in their wealth, they boasted in their worldliness, right? And for them, in their understanding, in the way that they thought, that for them became their righteousness. But listen, their wealth and position was as nothing compared with Jesus and his holdings. He is the author. He is the creator. He is the owner of all things. So the idea here then, the way that Jesus presents himself to this church, is this. They could possess all things, the world has to offer, but in reality, they are the poorest of beggars without Jesus. But then on the other hand, think about those of us who know Christ, who have received Christ, who are members of his family. We are wealthy beyond measure. So Jesus is the agent of both the material and spiritual creation of God. Now that brings us to our fourth point 
And that is Christ's rebuke. Let's go back to our text. So anyway, seeing nothing in Laodicea that Jesus could approve of, he proceeds to rebuke them. Let's pick up now. Let's go back to our text, verses 15 and 16. These are the indictments that he brings against them. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now notice their condition was nauseating to our Lord. And listen, this should get our attention. I mean, you don't want to be a member of this club, right? And uh, would any of us want Jesus to feel this way about us? You know, considering us, uh, looking upon us and being nauseating to him. Why was that? You see, because they were straddlers. They were fence sitters. They were middle of the rotors. And because they were half-hearted Christians, they were paralyzed in any effort to be what God had called them to be, as a church to be. And what was that? They were to be a light. They were to be a witness for our Lord. But the problem? They were neither hot nor cold. And thus Jesus says to them, I would rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. Now why is that? You might be, at this point, you might just stop and think and you might ask yourself the question, I mean, isn't lukewarm better than cold? Well, I want you to think about this. When an individual is lukewarm, and I found this to be true, particularly in counseling, or bringing uh, a fault or some sin to someone's attention, they're hard to deal with. And why are they hard to deal with? Well, because of they think that they have some kind of a basis and standard of, of righteousness. They don't really see themselves as they really are. And it's hard for them to recognize their need. Because they just have enough of Christianity to come off as being respectable. But if they were flat out cold, you know, they would probably be more prone to recognize their need for Jesus and the things of the Spirit and therefore repent of their sin. But you see, they were like the Pharisees. And that this would be an, an accurate way of describing the Pharisees and their makeup and what they were uh, all about. Uh, they didn't recognize their spiritual blindness as well. And thus they were hard to deal with. Think about the many encounters that the Lord had with the Pharisees and the scribes, how hard they were to deal with. But unfortunately, this is like so many people today who have taken the name of Christ, who say, we're not blind. We see, we're not ignorant, we know, and they boast of the light that they have. They boast of their works and the knowledge, and yet they reject Christ. And Jesus would say of them as well, verse 16, Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, this was the problem. They weren't hot. You know that word hot? that we translate, our English word hot, we translate it from a Greek word. The Greek word is zestos. That's where we get our English word zest from as well. And that can be translated boiling hot. So they didn't deny the gospel, these people there in Laodicea. They just weren't boiling hot. That is, they weren't ardent Christians. There was no enthusiasm, there was no emotion, there was no zeal, there was no urgency about their service to God, their relationship with God. And it just goes to show you, I mean, isn't it amazing how we can have a large measure of doctrinal correctness, a good appearance, 
but nevertheless without the fire of spiritual fervor and affection. And to such a church, Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. You know, John Stott, one of my favorite writers, commenting on this illustration, said, and I quote, Christ's forceful expression is one of disgust. He will utterly repudiate those whose attachment to him is purely nominal and superficial. It is possible then for one to be religious and at the same time to be repulsive to Christ. All such he must eject. Like the Pharisees who were blind and did not know it, so the Laodicean church did not know their real condition. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of that incident that's recorded for us in the gospel where in the last days there are many who come to Jesus and cry out, Lord, Lord, and how does Jesus respond to them? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And so these people were actually deceived themselves to believe that they had a right standing and relationship with God. But they were mistaken. They had deceived themselves. That's what was going on in Laodicea. Now in verse 17, let's go back to our text. Verse 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, these were their substitutes. Their condition can be summed up in two phrases. Thou sayest and knowest not, or they do not know. They said they were rich. They had need of nothing. But notice Christ's estimation of them here. All of the while was that they were wretched, that they were miserable, that they were poor, that they were blind, that they were naked. Listen, gang, that was their true condition. And what a contrast between the way that they saw themselves and the way that Jesus saw them. Truly, they were deceived. Now, there's something else that I want to draw your attention to here. Whenever a church ceases to speak of Christ and begins to boast in their wealth and their accomplishments and their riches and, and only speaks of and, and boasts of material things, riches and resources, and there's no praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, let me tell you something. That is a church that is dead. You know, this reminds me of what Paul said, and he's recorded for us in the book of Galatians. And, and consider for a moment before we read that, think of all of the many advantages that Paul had, that he could have boasted in, all of the uh, benefits of of being raised a, a Jew and, and of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, uh, one of the royal tribes, and being schooled in the great rabbinical school in the city of Jerusalem, a Pharisee among Pharisees. All, all of those things that he could have counted as advantages for him, but he, he wouldn't boast in those things. And in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, he writes, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh my That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. Did you know that you can listen to Pastor Mike's teachings on your favorite podcast app? Just search for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio and be sure to subscribe. And let us know you're a listener in the comments. 
We'd love for you to join us for worship this Sunday at Harvest Christian Fellowship, too. Check harvestnyc.org for service times. You can reserve your seat by clicking on Contact and then the Register link. We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area, or if you're unable to attend in person, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time studying God's Word. We're live streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to catch previous Sunday messages, click on the Resources tab. You can also watch services through our Vimeo link or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to all of these are available at our website. One more time, that's harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to ask you to join us in praying for all those listening to Pastor Mike's teachings. Please pray for open hearts and open ears to hear and accept truth. Thanks for praying, and thanks for joining us today. We look forward to our continuing study of Revelation next time, here on In My Father's House. There's a place for